Hi, I'm Chelsea, the Christian nutritionist. Welcome to the Christian Health Club podcast. We are here to fire you up in spirit, mind, and body so that you can get out into the world and be everything God created you to be. Welcome to the club. Here we go. Hello, my friend. Welcome back to the club. How are you today? Hey, have you ever read the book of Genesis? (laughs) If you've been hanging around with me a while, you know how I love the book of Genesis and how I believe that our most basic foundational health needs are pretty much revealed right in the beginning in the creation story. I love considering how our bodies, um, you know, work in relation to creation, you know, and how we're meant to synergistically work with the sun and the water and land and plant and animal. But here recently, I thought it would be fun to reread the whole book of Genesis and look for all of the times that food is mentioned. Because yes, I'm a nerd. And that's what I do for funsies. Um, No, I really was I was like, Oh, I think that'll be a little fun project. And so um, and so I did, and I had forgotten just what a juicy, crazy, soap opery story Genesis is. I mean, these people had some problemas, and they did some things that are cringe and wince-worthy, you know, even by today's standards. There's obviously, you know, food temptation that we can all relate to, but there's sibling rivalry and drunk shenanigans and erotic herbs and marital issues and murder. Oh, man, it's a pretty entertaining read. Um, I don't mean to make light of it, you know, like that. But seriously, you read it and you think, what is wrong with these people? And in a weird way, it kind of brings you some comfort, you know, to know that these people, God's people were so flawed and face just as many dramatic situations as we do today. And God still loves them just as he loves us. We are human. We are sinners, but God always had a plan for redemption um, in our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And when you read Genesis, you're like, yep, we need one. <laughs> we need, we've needed one right from the beginning. Um, so I recommend you read Genesis if you never have. It, it is a good read. Um, or even if you have, you know, I've read it several times. Um, but it's, uh, it's a good time of the year to do that, you know, first month of the year first book of the Bible. It's definitely not boring. So um, give it a whirl if you haven't or you haven't in a while. Today we're gonna you know hit the foodie highlights. Um, Sometimes food is at the center of these situations and these Bible verses and sometimes it's just kind of on the periphery but I just it was fun to go through it and um, see it in context and I just love gleaning insight you know for how it played out in their everyday lives, you know, and these are just my observations um, from going through it and my thoughts that I jotted down as I, as I went through. So we will just go ahead and get started with uh, our first provision for food, which comes from Genesis 129 and says, 
God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food. By the way, um, I, I use different translations as I was going through this. Um, the one, the Bible I'm using right now is the common English Bible. I've been enjoying that just because it's very plain spoken. You kind of understand it, you know, um, but sometimes the wording is a little bit kind of strange. Uh, so sometimes then I'll, you know, go over into, you know, a King James version or an IV or, you know, Google something and, and look at a different translation. So I don't know, there's, there going to be kind of a combination here. So if it, there's a wording that seems unfamiliar to you, that's probably what it is. Um, but it gets to the gist of what it's saying. So here we go. You know, God gives us plant foods. And I always take note of this. You know, the fact that we got plant foods first. Animal foods, you know, they don't come in until after Noah. And so we'll get there. But it does beg the question, you know, I've thought this is, was this meant to be our original diet, you know, all plant foods. And there are some biblical nutritionists who think so, you know, they, they want to stop at the garden of Eden essentially. Um, but God didn't, you know, he does go on to give us animal foods. And it's why I truly believe that the combination of plant and animal foods is best for our bodies. I mean, I've been tempted by the extreme diets just as the next person, you know, like over the years, should I be vegetarian or should I be vegan or should I do keto or should I do carnivore, you know, but what really has kept me centered and anchored all these years is the Genesis 129, Genesis 9-3 prescription, basically, that's what I call it, you know, of both plant and animal foods in the diet. And I remind people of that a lot here and in social media. You know, I think it's it's just a good, calming, <laughs> just it's the compass. You know, it's our compass for, for what to eat. Um, now, the caveat I always mention, you know, here and in other places is that there are times to use a more plant or animal-based approach, approach um, as a short-term therapeutic diet. But it's not the goal for the long haul. You know, in either extreme, the point is real food. No matter if you're, um, you know, using it as a therapeutic diet, as a, a vegetarian, or, you know, as more of a, a meat-based diet. And why would you do more of a meat-based diet? Well, a lot of people um, have ruined their guts so much they cannot handle carbs. Um, and so there are times when a higher meat diet um, is extremely helpful. But in, in either situation, what we're talking about here is real food. Um, you know, real food the way God made it. And the very bottom line also is that, you know, in the long run, we are designed to have both in our systems. Um, but plants, you know, here we go. Plants are, are first right here, and they are very important long-term health. Um, also, you know, what I noted from this verse is how seed is mentioned several times. And to remember that, you know, real food, no matter if it's from a plant or animal, starts as a seed, you know, just as we start as a seed. You know, it's life. It's growth. And if we want to be healthy, we need food that gives life, not processed foods that were concocted in a factory and never had a, you know life about them they've just had the life 
so completely processed out of them. There's nothing left to give in those foods. You know, sometimes, sadly, I think we're, we think we're smarter than God and can make smarter plants or make meat from plants or grow, grow it in a lab. Mm, lab meat mm, sounds so yummy. <laughs> I don't get it. I'm like, why? Why don't we just take God at his word, literally his word, that he gives us real plants and real meat? You know, I think that the smarter, quote unquote, smarter we get, the sicker we get. You can't outsmart the creator of our bodies and the creator of the food for our bodies. Foods um, that, you know, have life, have had life, give life. That is the design of our creator. Now, speaking of trying to be smarter than the creator and one up our God-given diets, um, that's what the next verse reminds me of. Um, it comes from Genesis 1:30, and it says, To all the wildlife, to all the birds of the sky, and to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes, I give the green plants for food. And so what I think of is um, all of the animals not being fed their God-given diets. You know, like feeding genetically modified corn and soy to chickens and cattle and pigs and even fish. Yes, farmed fish are often fed corn and soy. It's no wonder animal foods get a bad rap for being unhealthy. You know, you are not only what you eat, but what you eat, eats. And that goes for plants too. What they, you know, quote unquote, eat, whether they're soaking up pesticides or being inbred with glyphosate, you know, the more poison we eat, whether it's from what our animals are eating, or our plants are eating, the more poison we will be. But when animals, you know, eat their God-given diets, like, you know, cattle eating grass and plants growing in healthy soil, you know, getting their diet of sunshine and nutrients from the soil, they pass on nutrients to us. I mean, we can't, we don't eat grass. You know, we can eat stuff like salad and herbs, which is kind of our version of grass. But a lot of the planet's plants, you know, are inedible to us. Yet the animals can eat those plants and those grasses, and they turn it in, into nutrients that are usable to us. You know, it is the most green, quote unquote, green, sustainable, earth-friendly approach. It's God's approach. It's his design you know. Okay, so then we move into Genesis 2:15 through 17 and it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So we know what's coming up here, but from a food perspective, you know, you just picture this beautiful, lush garden full of food, you know, generous provision, food that is ripe for the taking, but also that man does have responsibility to care for God's food supply. This verse says, you know, that he put man in the garden to work it and take care of it. You know, you can eat from it, but you have responsibility here. That is established right from the beginning. And of course, the story continues. You know, now Eve is in the garden. She's in the picture. So is the snake, unfortunately. Um, 
and it says, the woman said to the snake, we may eat the fruit of the garden's trees, but not the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat from it. Don't touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, you won't die. God knows that on the day you eat from it, you will see clearly and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was beautiful with delicious food and that the tree would provide wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then they both saw clearly and knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made garments for themselves. Okay, so here we have the first example of food temptation right out of the gate. Eve had that voice of the enemy in her ear, lying about all that she would gain if she ate the food, right? We heard it, the enemy saying, you know, basically like, what's the big deal? You eat this food and it's delicious and you get wisdom and you totally deserve that. And how is that different from us? You know, what we hear today, just eat the cookie. I mean, what's the big deal? You've had a hard day. You totally deserve it. It'll make you feel so much better. Treat yourself. You know, we face the same thing. I'm sure glad the trajectory of humanity was not resting on my shoulders and my ability to overcome temptation uh, because I would have failed miserably. Um, so we should cut Eve a little slack here. You know, our tempter does not slither up to us in the form of a snake, a talking snake, but don't doubt that he is constantly worming his way into our minds, preying upon our weaknesses, you know, which for so many of us is food. He tempts us with food. He tempts us with power. It's exactly what he did uh, to Jesus in the wilderness. You know, we were just talking about this in Bible study, how, you know, Satan tempted Jesus with bread when he was fasting, when he was hungry, and he tempted him with power. But Jesus overcame that. You know, he righted where we went wrong. It's like a scenario redo. You know, there's that parallel there. Like, we, we did it wrong, but Jesus shows us how, how it's done. You know, he didn't give in. Um, okay, so then it goes on, and God said, because you listened to your wife's voice, and you ate from the tree that I commanded, you will not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you will eat from it every day of your life. Weeds and thistles will grow for you, even as you eat the field's plants. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the fertile land. Since from it you were taken, you are soil. To the soil you will return. Okay, so... Adam and Eve, you know, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not supposed to. Before that, they were living, you know, relative, relatively on easy street, you know, until they disobeyed God. You know, they had to do a little work in the garden. But for the most part, they just got to walk around and be with God and pick beautiful, lush food off the trees right there, you know, available for them. Screwed that up, you know. And so now... Part of their punishment is that God makes it harder for man to provide for his family. You know, instead of picking luscious fruit off the trees, man will have to work hard against the elements of the earth to make food for his family. You know, they haven't been given the green light to eat meat yet. So food is not 
is not easy to come by. You know, it's not supposed to be what, according to what God is saying here, you know, like you had it all, you had it all and you messed up. And so providing for your family is going to be difficult now. Oh, and having a family is going to be difficult too. Because remember, God told Eve that bearing children would be very painful. So in addition to separating themselves from God by blatant sin, that only Jesus, you know, could reconcile, part of their punishment was pain and having a family and providing for that family, you know, wasn't going to be easy. Also of note in this verse, you know, is that God reminds us we are, we came from the soil. In Genesis 2, 1, it said that Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth. And here it says, you are soil and to soil you will return. Now I've talked about this before and we've talked um, a lot about it in the podcast I did when I had Tina on from Just Thrive Probiotics. You know, we are made from the soil. And what's in soil? Little microorganisms like bacteria. You know, soil is teeming with bacteria and we are bacterial beings. In fact, we have more bacteria in our bodies than we do human cells. Now, at one time it was thought we had like 10 times more bacteria than human cells, but now scientists believe that there's not quite such a big gap, but it's still something like 39 trillion bacteria to 30 trillion human cells. We have bacteria all over our body but the majority is concentrated in our large intestine and bacteria play a huge role in our health. You know, they do a lot of things for us, helping, you know, extract nutrients from food and uh, they make up a bunch of our immune system and do a lot of things that help protect us. And it's why it's so critical that we encourage this balance of bacteria and a diverse population of bacteria, uh, make sure we have more good, you know, quote unquote good, helpful bacteria in the body than bad. You know, it's normal to have both. We're going to have a little of both, but if you have more unhelpful bacteria working against your body, the sicker and the more unhealthy you are going to be. You know, I've shared here that uh, when I run GI maps, stool tests on people, and we're kind of looking at these bacterial balances, I've never had one come back that did not have some kind of, uh, pathogenic or, you know, dysbiotic bacteria, a bad bacteria overgrowth. It's so common for us to have that just because of our environment and, you know, all of the antibiotics we've had and the, the chemically foods we eat. And so it's something to, you know, really, really stay on top of is your gut health, you know, and it's, it's important to get outside. We get beneficial bacteria from the soil. If we keep the soil healthy, you know, again, goes back to that um it's our responsibility to you know keep the garden healthy and and that includes the soil because it affects us directly it's all of this center this synergistically working together you know um creation with creation okay so now we're going to skip ahead a little to genesis 4 where the children of adam and eve um, have some problems one of the sons cain kills his brother Abel, basically out of jealousy and resentment. So Cain presents part of his land crop as an offering to God, and Abel presents animal fat from his flock. And God looked more favorably on Cain's offering than on Abel's, and that made Abel mad. So Abel lures his brother Cain out into a field and kills him. 
And when God asks Abel, uh, where, where's your brother? Abel says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And I mean, I just imagine that with like the, the biggest teenager attitude, <laughs> him saying that, you know, and then there's that saying that we still use today. Like, am I in my brother's keeper? You know, I don't know where he is, but I just imagine, you know, that teenagerous sarcasm and eye rolling going on there. So God says, you know, you are now cursed from the ground that opened its mouth to take your brother's blood from your hand. When you farm the fertile land, it will no longer grow anything for you, and you will become a roving nomad on the earth. That's Genesis 4, 11 through 12. So God punishes Cain for killing his brother. You know, and once again, this is centered around food. Food is central to life. You know, ease or difficulty of life. It determines home. You know, no food will grow for him. He must leave. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, next, we move forward to the time of Noah. Here we go. About to get some meat up in here. Um, so after the flood, when the waters finally recede and Noah gets off, he builds an altar to the Lord. And in Genesis 8, 20 and 21, it says, he took some of the clean large animals and some of the clean birds and placed entirely burned offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the pleasing scent, and the Lord thought to himself, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So first off, my first thought was, well, God can appreciate a good barbecue. <laughs> no, it just the fact that it says God smells, you know, he the the scent was pleasing to him. It just made me thaws, pause because, you know, I think we, we often picture God as, you know, this kind of ethereal spirit without human characteristics, you know, until he came as Jesus. But clearly God smells and the meat of uh, the smell of meat was pleasing to him. And he says he will no longer curse the ground and never destroy all living creatures again. So this is all part of the new covenant God is making with man. And this is when, you know, he seals the deal with a rainbow, right? So the, the rainbow is the reminder of this new covenant. And all of this is encompassed with that. It's just so cool when you see a rainbow and, and that's what you think of. Or I hope that's, you know, what you think of is just this, this new beginning, this new covenant, this start over, this provision from God. And it says, uh, God blessed Noah and his sons and be said, he said, be fertile and multiply and fill the earth. And it says, um, in Genesis nine, two and three, it says all of the animals on the earth will fear you and dread you all the birds in the skies, everything crawling on the ground and all of the seas fish, they are in your power. Everything that lives and moves will be your food. Just as I give you the green grasses, I now give you everything. So meat is on, right? We can eat meat. The land will no longer be cursed. Um, lots of good things happening here. Can you imagine what a gift this was, you know, to have this? I mean, food is life, right? We have to have food. And these people are, are working for the food. And this opened up a whole new avenue, a whole new way for man to feed and provide for his family. You know, to me, when I think of this, of God 
giving meat to man, it just, it kind of, it's like a gift of ease, of more ease. You know, meat, especially from a large animal, goes a long way in feeding a family. You know, we take for granted how easy it is to get access to food because we have grocery stores. But if you had to live off the land and you're at the mercy of nature, you know, being able to eat that goat or that fatted calf is a godsend. I mean, literally a godsend. You know, I always say this, but one of the most valuable perspectives that moving from Houston out to the ranch um, taught, this is what it taught me. Because when you're out in the middle of a pasture, of course, you know, originally it wasn't marked off as pastures. Uh, When Native Americans lived there, it was just wide open land. But when you're standing in the middle of endless land, okay, and you're thinking about the times people lived off the land, no grocery stores, not even any farming fields, you know, you realize how hard it would be to get food, especially in the winter, you know, and a wild deer or buffalo would have just meant all the difference could mean the difference between life or death, you know, eating or starvation. It makes you appreciate the gift of animal foods that God has given us. You know, again, I mean, maybe the original plan was for us to live off only plant foods, you know, Garden of Eden style. But, um, you know, some pe- some other nutritionists also will, you know, argue that, you know, the Daniel fast and that's we're supposed to eat like that as well. But I think that we have to look at the fullness and richness of God's provision and consider that he gave us meat to eat for a reason. He certainly didn't have to. He could have kept things the way that they were. Um, But this truly was a gift. And I'm going to take God at his word, literally at his word, that this is part of the diet he sanctions me to eat, you know, and just trust his reasoning, whatever that may be. It is one of the things I would like to ask God <laughs> when I get there. So what was what was your reasoning? Like, give me the scoop about, you know, the plant foods coming first and the animal foods coming later. Like, what's up with that? Okay. This next part, it might be my very favorite part of the whole chapter because it involves wine. <laughs> but in Genesis 9.20, it says, Noah, a farmer, made a new start and planted a vineyard. Okay, so we got all this worked out with God. And it's like, the first thing Noah does is, you know, he gets off the boat, does this works out with God. And immediately, he's like, I need to make wine start happening. It's because I've got priorities. (laughs) I mean, I would want wine too, if I'd been stuck on a boat with my family and a bunch of stinky animals for all that time. Um, and now, I mean, even better, you know, he could enjoy a nice glass of red wine with his steak that he's allowed to have. So life is good. Um, so that's what Noah wants to do, you know, pretty much first and foremost is a plant a vineyard. And interestingly, this verse, uh, the verse right after this tells how Noah got drunk. So this, this is not good, but he got drunk and took his clothes off, um, in the tent, like he just got drunk, got naked. And you know, there's all these shenanigans happening. And obviously, they've been happening since the beginning of time. And then what happened was uh, Noah's youngest son, um, you know, saw that his dad do that, did that his dad did that, that got drunk, took his clothes off and, and um, Ham, that was the son. Um, see, it's even an animal name. 
<laughs> no, ham, ham. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. It's not ham like West Texas accent I'm putting it in, but um, however you say that name, ham, ham. Um, he told his brothers what his dad did, kind of ratted out his dad to his brothers, and uh, that made Noah mad, and he cursed. He cursed that son for that. So don't talk dad, bad about dad. It's not going to be good for your future. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward to the time of Abraham and Sarah. And this verse says, this comes from Genesis 18, 2 through 8. It says, Abraham looked up and saw three, mans, three men standing near him. Let me offer you a little bread so you will feel stronger. So Abraham hurried to Sarah at his tent and said, hurry, need three sayas of the finest flour and make some baked goods, make some bread. And Abraham ran to the cattle, took a healthy young calf and gave it to the servant who prepared it quickly. Then Abraham took butter, milk and the calf that had been prepared, put the food in front of them, in front of the men and stood under the tree near them as they ate. Okay. So that is the situation going on. Um, and these are the three men who project that Sarah will, you know, soon have a son in her ripe old age. And when Sarah overhears them, she laughs and it, you know, that, that takes off God. Um, but that's the important part of this passage. But, you know, I'm looking at this fascinating food scenario because first of all, this is like the modern day equivalent of your husband calling you and saying, um, I've invited three guests for dinner and we're on the way right now. And then you're scrambling to, you know, make something all while you're cursing your husband <laughs> and do your breath. Um, and I don't know if Sarah was silently cussing Abraham, but surely she was a little rattled by the need for speed here. I mean, how long does it take to make baked goods from scratch in the wilderness? I'd imagine it takes a hot minute. Then Abraham is like, you know, hey, servant, here's a calf. We'd like some steak, you know, we'd like a steak for dinner. Take this live animal and make it happen. I mean, can you imagine? I'm, I mean, I'm sure they had fires going for all these things, but uh, this animal had to be butchered and prepared and cooked. You know, this is not a quick throw something together meal. This was serious hospitality and home cooking at its finest. You know, but it just, the reading this just kind of, it made me chuckle. You know, I'm like, man here we are today with all our convenience foods and we're just kind of irritated by having to cook and all the, with all these things that we have, all these cooking contraptions and instant pots, you know, all these things that make cooking fast. And you just think about what it took to pull a meal together back in the day. I also took note from this uh, little passage that Abraham served meat, milk, butter, and bread. So, um, he, got on, you know, they really took to all this, the animal foods they could have now. And, uh, you know, maybe Sarah whipped up a salad to go with it, but didn't say anything about that. So I don't know if they had any vegetables present at that meal. Okay. The next significant food event comes when, um, Abraham's grandsons, Jacob and Esau, so these are the sons of Isaac, you know, so Abraham has Isaac and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau. All right, so the verse says, Once when Jacob was boiling stew, Esau came in from the field hungry and said, I'm starving. Let me devour some of this red stuff. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright. And Esau said, Well, since I'm going to die anyway, 
what good is my birthright to me? He sold his birthright to Jacob. So Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate, drank, got up and left, showing just how little he thought of his birthright. So Jacob and Esau were twins, but uh, Jacob was born, you know, right after Esau. He came second. So he was the second son. And therefore, you know, all of the all of the good stuff goes to the firstborn and uh, including just, you know, the, the birthright, the blessing, all of that. Um, but <laughs> this passage is funny because I, I think the word that we're looking for here is hangry. I think Esau was hangry. And we can do and say some stupid things when we're hangry, right? This is the epitome of that. Esau sounds like a big old baby, you know, like, well, since I'm just going to die anyway, you know, I'm starving. I'm just going to starve to death. It's just so dramatic. I mean, you know, he could have bargained to do Jacob's chores or something a little less life impacting than selling his birthright. Also, you know, interesting to note here is that he did it for a bowl of lentil stew and bread. Um, I have not eaten a lot of lentils. In Feast of Fast, uh, those fall under the whole food carbs category that we bring in in week two. Uh, they're a legume and uh, they do offer some good nutrients. I mean, as far as, um, you know, a legume, grainy um, type carb uh, they, they do offer some good nutrients like B vitamins and iron. They have a little protein. I think lentils were a common biblical food. And so, um, that's probably, you know, if, if you it works with your body to eat grains and legumes, that's probably a good one to go for. Um, so, okay. This is not the last time that we see a high drama food situation with these brothers. So when Isaac, their dad is close to death and ready to give his final blessing, he sends Esau off to hunt and bring back a good meal to mark the occasion. So, you know, Esau's, you know, kind of known as the hunter and, you know, gets the food and can make good food. Uh, but Isaac said, take your hunting gear, your bow and your quiver of arrows, go out into the field and hunt game for me. Make me the delicious food that I love and bring it to me so that I can eat. Then I can bless you before I die. Okay, so Esau goes off to do that. But in the meantime, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, uh, wants Jacob, the younger son, to get the final blessing. She favors Jacob. And so she sends him to get a couple goats to make for a meal. Now, poor Isaac, he can't really see very well in his old age. And so Jacob is able to pass himself off as Esau and get the blessing. And he goes to some great lengths. Like he puts animal skins on his arm because... Apparently Esau was kind of a hairy guy and I guess Jacob was not. And so he's, you know, he knew his dad's going to be touching his arm. So he's putting on these skins. So it feels like hair. I mean, this was some deception and mama was in on it. <laughs> um, but it, you know, it is what it is. Um, Jacob is the one who God will eventually rename Israel um, and have all the sons who become the different tribes, uh, you know, of Israel and establish the nation. So, you know, this was all meant to happen, but, um, but first Jacob serves up a big old plate of deception to his aging dad, you know, and I, Isaac does give Jacob the blessing. He says, may God give you showers from the sky, olive oil from the earth, plenty of grain and new wine. May the nations serve you. May peoples bow down to you. Be the most powerful man among your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Those who curse you will be cursed, and those who bless you 
will be blessed. So I think it's interesting that the first part of this blessing is about food. You know, that God would provide sustenance in olive oil and grain and wine. You know, food is so central to these passages about Esau and Jacob. Um, and it's just, it just, it's so central to life, this sustenance, this provision. You know, and poor Esau, when he returns with the delicious meal that he made for the blessing occasion and finds out that Jacob has already taken it, I mean, he is ticked off, right? Rightfully so. There is some serious brother drama going on, just kind of like there was with Cain and Abel. So as we move a little forward here um, to when Jacob is grown and he's married, and remember that Jacob had several wives. His father-in-law tricked him into marrying uh, the oldest daughter, Leah, before marrying the younger daughter, Rachel, who was the one he really wanted to marry. Um, and he ends up being able to marry both, but Rachel has trouble getting pregnant um, while Leah is cranking out boys like it's her job. And you can imagine this sibling rivalry this situation created. You know, so we just had the, the brother drama situation, and now we've got some sister drama. And Jacob really loves Rachel, but Leah is the one giving him sons. Okay, so that's the background you need to know for this little, this next little scenario, which um, comes from Genesis 30, 14. It says, during wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. So Reuben is uh, Leah's son, Jacob and Leah's son. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Okay. So that doesn't sound very significant, but I was like, okay, what is, you know, what is a mandrake? What actually in the, in the common English Bible that I was reading, it said Reuben found erotic herbs in the field. <laughs> that's, that's the first translation I read. I was like erotic herbs. And so when I looked up in the other translations, most of them said mandrake. A few said love apples. Um, so I had, I was like, okay, well, what's a mandrake? So mandrakes are roots of a certain plant that were used medicinally in a variety of ways. But one of those ways was to enhance sexual desire and fertility. So Rachel wanted the mandrakes from Leah, right? Because she is having fertility issues. And Leah says, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? And Rachel said, very well. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. I mean, y'all, <laughs> if this doesn't sound like a soap opera, I don't know what does. They are bargaining for their mutual husband's sexual attention. Okay. And so when Jacob comes back from the field, Leah is like, let's go. I bought some time with you fair and square, buddy. And so, you know, they go do their thing. And you know what? Leah got pregnant with her fifth son from that little exchange. So I guess it was a good bargain. She gave Rachel the, the mandrakes, the love apples, the erotic herbs. And then she got her man and, uh, she had another son and went on to have, uh, another son and a daughter before Rachel was finally able to conceive. And she had Joseph. So all of this sibling rivalry, and there, there comes a time when we circle back um, 
to Jacob and Esau, and it's time for Jacob to reunite with his brother. Okay, the one that he took the family blessing from. And um, Jacob knows he is about to reunite with Esau, and he is understandably nervous. He thinks Esau might kill him for what he did. So, you know, he's, he's got a lot of anxiety about this. And, you know, in the Bible, um, it says that one night on during the journey on the way that to go back to, you know, meet up with Esau, the Bible says that um, Jacob wrestled with a man until dawn broke. Okay, when you're reading it, it's kind of, it's weird. It's kind of, you're like, what? It feels like this very weird and random encounter. But, you know, this is how God rolls sometimes. And, you know, as you read it, you get the sense that Jacob is both desperate uh, but determined. And he knows something is up with this this man that he's wrestling with. And he's like, I am not letting you go until you bless me. You know, he was in for the fight. And so the man gray, grabbed uh, Jacob's thigh and tore his muscle. But Jacob hung on. And the man said, what is your name? And when Jacob told him, the man said, you will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you struggled with God and you struggled with man. Then Jacob was like, um, tell me your name. <laughs> and, you know, he's catching on like, this is significant. What is going on here? This, this man is changing his name. Um, you know, what, what's happening? The man said, why do you ask me for my name? And then he blessed Jacob. So Jacob is now Israel. Okay. This is the switch. Jacob is now Israel. Um, he realizes that he has had an encounter with God. And he named that wrestling spot Peniel, which means something along the lines of the one who struggles with God or one who has seen the face of God. Um but what's interesting, I had to tell you all of that to lead up to this verse in Genesis 32, 32, which says, Israelites don't eat the tendon attached to the thigh muscle because he grabbed Jacob's thigh muscle at the tendon. So um, it's just kind of interesting, a little, a little food rule here um, that the, they took on that, you know, they're, they're not going to eat the tendon attached to the thigh muscle because of this experience to honor this experience that Jacob had. Okay. Now we're going to skip ahead about five chapters to Genesis 37. It's only five chapters, but a lot has happened. Genesis is like that. Again, we're just, like I said, kind of hitting the foodie points here, but you've really got to go in and read it in its entirety to piece it all together. Um, but I think you're getting the sense that it's pretty drama packed. Okay. So here's what the verse says. Genesis 37, 25. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Okay, so the situation at this point is that Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, who is now Israel, um, but Jacob and Rachel, you know, who Jacob loved so much and they had so much trouble having children together but they had joseph and he is now 17 years old in this scenario he is his dad's favorite and all the brothers resent that you know he um he has joseph has all of these i guess half brothers <laughs> half brothers cousins whatever you want to call them um but brothers and you know joseph is Jacob's favorite. I mean, Rachel was his favorite wife. And, you know, these other brothers resent that. I mean, naturally. So 
Joseph really doesn't help himself because um, one at this point he tells his brothers that he has these dreams that basically he's going to ultimately rule over the brothers. And one of the dreams is a food dream where they are all binding up stalks of grain in a field and all of the brothers stalks of grain bound down to Joseph's stalks. And the other dream is that the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bow down to Joseph, which kind of insinuates his mom, his dad, and his brothers are bowing down to him. Okay. Well, you can't blame his brothers for thinking his, you know, a self-centered twit. And so, you know, they do what any other ticked off sibling would do is that they throw him in a cistern, like a well, an empty cistern, and they just, they leave him to die. But before they leave, it says they sat down and had a meal, which I think is really strange. Like, no big deal. You know, we just plotted and sealed our brother's fate, but who's hungry? (laughs) It just feels so extra callous. Um, But while they're sitting there eating, this caravan of Ishmaelites are on their way to Egypt, um, and they ride by on their camels, which are loaded with spices and balm and myrrh. Another Bible version describes these goods as sweet resin, medical resin, and fragrant resin. So something you taste, something that is healing, and something that smells good. And these are just like the exact little treasures that I love finding in scripture. You know, it feels like a connection, like a kind of a bridge between ancient and modern times. It's just a small relatable point because, you know, I resonate with like sprinkling spices into my food or slathering balm over dry skin or diffusing one of my essential oils, you know? A little side note here, I think I've shared this with y'all before, but have you ever smelled myrrh? Um, Because I got a bottle of myrrh that came in my oils of scripture set from Young Living, which I absolutely love, which I always pull out over uh, Lent and really try to use to just kind of enhance the Lent experience. Um, But when I got them and I was opening them and testing out all the, you know, smelling them, my husband said that the myrrh smelled like a Western wear store, which cracked me up because he's just, he nailed it. You know, I didn't think of that, but it totally does. It smells like straw hats and leather boots all kind of rolled up into an essential oil. But yeah, I like that. I'm from Texas. You know, what can I say? Um, Okay, fast forward a few years. um, And Joseph is living in Egypt. So you know, his brothers left him for dead. Um, He ends up in Egypt. And it turns out that the um, that kind of annoying God given gift of dream interpretation ends up paying off. Um, It may have gotten him thrown in the cistern and left to die, but it's also the skill that put him before the king of Egypt and led him to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. So Joseph had earned a reputation as a dream interpreter. And so at one point, Pharaoh summons Joseph from jail to explain a dream that he's had about seven scrawny cows devouring seven fat, healthy-looking cows. And so this is what it says in Genesis 41, 28 to 30. So this is um, Joseph speaking to Pharaoh. It says, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are now coming throughout the entire land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will appear and all of the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. So Joseph explains that this means there will be seven years of food abundance followed by seven years of famine. 
And this insight allows Pharaoh to plan ahead. And so he puts Joseph in charge of doing this. Joseph instructs Pharaoh, you know, because Joseph has all this wisdom, you know, this is all God's plan. And um, Joseph instructs Pharaoh to set aside a fifth of all of the grain produced during the seven abundant years so that there will be some reserve for the years of the famine. And so this is what they do. And ultimately it saves many in Egypt and the surrounding lands from starvation. In fact, Joseph's brothers are driven from the land of Canaan to Egypt in search of food when, ta-da, they bow down in front of their brother. Yep, the one they left for dead. It, it comes full circle right here. That dream that about the stalks of wheat bowing down to, you know, the one stalk of wheat, you know, that originally made the brothers so mad. Well, it's, it came true. I also think it's an interesting parallel here between the, the feast and the famine of land and of life. You know, there's li the literal cycle of feast and famine that hit Egypt when there were seven years of plenty and then seven years of lack. The rhythm of feasting and fasting, you know, based on food availability was a normal part of life. You know, whether it was on this grand scale or on a more minuscule scale, like being without food for a few days here and there. You know, in modern times, we are disconnected with this rhythm because, you know, of abundant food availability, which is a beautiful thing. We are so blessed. Um, but, you know, our bodies are equipped and designed to withstand sometimes of fasting. And this is, this is the concept, the basis of how I design Feast to Fast, where we interject that intermittent fasting and occasional longer fast into our routines to stoke metabolic flexibility. Um, so the story reminds us that there will be, you know, feast and famine in the land and feast and famine in life, generally speaking, you know, Joseph was abandoned by family, imprisoned in a foreign land, you know, but then that would be a, a time of, you know, famine in your life. Uh, but then he quickly rose to prominence and power, you know, and it may sometimes feel like we're in a cycle of lack, but God is always at work. Joseph remained faithful, uh, but I bet even he couldn't imagine the extravagant rise on the other side of his challenge. You know, with God, all things are possible. Okay, and so finally, the last foodie verse uh, I found in Genesis comes from Genesis 43, 11. It says, then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your packs and carry them down as a gift for the man. A little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachios and almonds. Okay, so Joseph did not reveal his identity to his brothers when they first went to Egypt in search of food. And he kind of played them a little, you know, you can't blame him for that. So he made them return to Canaan to fetch the other beloved brother, Benjamin. Okay. And as they were preparing to go back to Egypt, Benjamin had stayed, he's left, stayed left behind. He's the youngest son, uh, Joseph's true brother, also a son of Rachel. And so, um, he did not go to Egypt with the other brothers in search of food. Um, but Joseph wanted to see him. So he sent the the brothers that came back to Canaan to get Benjamin. And as they were preparing to go back to Egypt, um, Israel, you know, this is for 
who's Jacob, formerly named Jacob, he told the brothers to take some goodies with them as an offering, you know, basically like the modern day gift basket, you know, and I can even picture doing this now, like putting together some local honey and nuts and a really good spice and maybe a bottle of essential oil or handmade balm. And I would love a gift basket like that. You know, I love this passage. Also in this passage, it tells how when the brothers returned to Egypt, this time with Benjamin in tow, Joseph instructed his house manager to slaughter an animal and prepare it for dinner in honor of the return. So this is just another example of a meat being central to a celebratory or special meal. And, you know, in the end, um, Joseph just shows a great amount of grace to his brothers. In the very last chapter of Genesis, he says to them, you planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it in order to save the lives of many people, just as he is doing today. And that is a beautiful place to end here, right? We made it through Genesis, all the foodie things. Um, I hope you found it as fascinating as I do. And I hope that it entices you enough to want to read Genesis or reread Genesis. Um, you know, anytime we get in our Bible, it's good for our soul. Um, and whatever takes you there, you know, I told y'all, God knows how to work me. <laughs> He's like, get in there, girl, and see all the times you can see food happening. And so that's what I did, you know. Um, but I think it's so fascinating. I think we, we learn a lot and just... Um, like I said, glean stuff about the culture and insight and things that we can take away, but also just, gosh, all of these kind of bigger life lessons, you know, all of these, this kind of drama things they had going on. There is nothing new under the sun, people. <laughs> this, this is it. But um, I do love wrapping this, uh, wrapping it up here with that, that line from Joseph that you plan something bad for me, but God produced something good from it. Um, and so, you know, that's what God's always doing, always working through our lives in the feasts and the famines. And I hope that you will take that with you today, my friend. Thank you so much for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week. And I will talk to you soon. Remember that my mom is an awesome nutritionist, but she's not a doctor. The information in this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Always talk to your doctor before making changes to your nutrition or exercise program. Thanks for listening. Have a healthy and blessed week.